I don't think anyone really has a very solid grasp at all on how the defensive players are rated across draft boards right now. Uh, so I'm kind of inclined to get involved in some of these defensive player markets like um, first linebacker is a good one. Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm Matt Landis, and I've landed my white whale, Drew Dinsick, also known as the Whale Capper on Twitter, joins us in this episode for a deep dive on the NFL Draft. For the unacquainted, Drew is an NFL and NBA handicapper for NBC Sports Edge, formerly known as RotoWire. He's also a frequent guest on VSIN, the Vegas Stats and Information Network, and he's also the co-host of the Deep Dive podcast, which he runs alongside Andy Molitor. Overall, Drew is sharp yet laid back, insightful and witty, definitely the kind of guy you'd want to have a beer with, and also the kind of guy that you want to place a bet with. And to that end, we get into the NFL draft in this episode, Looking at Drew's unique approach to this year's draft, considering there was no NFL Combine, also evaluating prop bets worth getting in pocket now based on current prices, as well as wagers worth keeping in the sights over these final few days before the Jaguars go on the clock on Thursday evening. If this sounds good, I'd appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be incredibly helpful. I'd like to take a quick moment to share an example of a recent review from Emma. She said, I'm always blown away by just how knowledgeable Matt is about betting and beer. He's so professional and engaging, and the overall presentation of the pod is great. Now, first of all, thanks so much, Emma. I really appreciate those kind words. And I'd like to note, it took less than 10 seconds to read that review, so a quick moment of your time really would be all it takes for a similar review that would be greatly appreciated. I'd also be wide open to any constructive criticism, anything to make this show as good as it can be, to the benefit of as many listeners as possible, I'm all ears. Alright, one more housekeeping note, if you're looking for betting edges beyond the NFL Draft, check out Dimers.com, where you can also get daily picks on basketball, baseball, and hockey. Now, with the number one overall pick in the 2021 Props and Hops Draft of Dream Interview Episodes, Enjoy my conversation with the whale capper, Drew Dinsick. Welcome to Props and Hops. <laughs> Drew Dinsick, couldn't quite hit your tone with the signature deep dive intro, but it is such an honor to have you on to talk NFL draft. Thanks for hopping on the show. Oh, no problem at all. It's great to be here and uh, always, always love meeting new people in the space. And uh, you have a co-focus between football and alcohol. So I couldn't say no to that. That's that's right in my wheelhouse. Great, great to be with you today and looking forward to talking some NFL. Cool. Likewise. Yeah, we'll get into plenty of NFL draft talk. And to set the stage, you also have a fascinating background outside of sports betting, including using earthquake engineering to build an NFL predictive model. And that's been chronicled in some really good recent interviews on other podcasts. So I'd like to note that previous Props and Hops guest Ed Fang had you on his football analytics show in January. 
And then a couple months ago, you also did good interviews with the Better Life and the Sharp Squares podcast. So if people want to learn more about your background, I'd highly recommend checking those out. In this conversation, we will focus on the NFL draft. Um, I'd love to do a deep dive profile, perhaps in a future Props and Hops episode. But for now, just to give people a taste, what would you say might be one thing that's not sports related about you that does still help you as a better? Yeah, um, thinking probabilistically when you're entering a betting market is pretty important, in my opinion. Uh, if you want to make if you if you want to make it if you want to make it long term and not have uh, you know betting be a continuous entertainment tax. Um, you got to think in terms of, you know, what is what are the what are reasonable probabilities of X and Y? Now, you don't have to use a math model to do that. You can just use a mental model. Um, but if you walk up to a board and you look at your prices and you just you've decided before you even see a price that the Dallas Cowboys are going to win this week because of reasons X, Y and Z. Uh, and then you look at the number and you bet into it without really thinking about probability, uh, then you're not going to win long term in this game because there are you know, a lot of the factors that you were thinking in your head of why I want to bet this side, you know, regardless of price, they might already be built into the line. Other people might be thinking the same thing. Uh, and you know, it could be already accounted for in that number, in which case you're just flipping a coin and you're paying a hundred ten, you know, you know, paying a dollar ten for it, uh, and getting a dollar back. So that's uh, obviously gonna bleed you out long term. Um, and yeah, so I guess just really uh, you know, rather than thinking, I know this is gonna happen, so I'm gonna make a bet on it, you really gotta kind of think. What is the likelihood that this happens? And what does the market think the likelihood this is? And do I have an edge? Uh, and then you fire away. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect way to set up the framework, not only for handicapping a football game, but something like the NFL draft, which we'll dive into here. <laughs> and to state the obvious, you can't bet anything without lines being offered. And I'd like to start there because this was a pretty lackluster market until we were less than two weeks out from the draft. And fortunately, Circa shook things up in a pretty big way. On the deep dive, you and Andy had one of their risk managers on the show last week. I'd highly recommend people checking that out if they haven't listened already. Full disclosure, we are recording this Friday, April 23rd, early afternoon Pacific time. Uh, we'll touch on some breaking news with the trade the Chiefs and Ravens have made. But before we get into all that, what are your overall thoughts on the draft when it comes to the rollout and the current landscape in terms of betting options and prices available? Yeah, I think it is typically a market that is difficult for bookmakers. Just out of the gate, it's tough for them. Uh, information moves numbers, not uh, you know, not probabilistic models. <laughs> like if you have, if, let's, let's say you're making a line for an NFL. You're, you're making you, you're just you're a you're a good bookmaker who's doing it the old-fashioned way you're not just staring at the down best screen moving your number when everybody else moves it you're actually you know trying to do price discovery and find the right price for an NFL game you're gonna have a handful of betters who bet into your market who you have some understanding some feeling of okay these guys know these guys are good I will weigh their opinions and if six of the 10 guys all bet one side on my opening numbers. I'm going to move the line in their direction. And then every all every other bet I write the rest of the week is going to be a coin flip for the betters. And I'm going to make I'm going to I'm going to hold a good percentage of that. Right. Well, that is not how things generally work in the NFL draft market. If six people come in and bet something or it just takes one guy 
who knows surely or has an inside leak, has some information, move, you know, he comes in hard, the line's going to move. Once everybody knows the information, then you don't get you don't get two-way action, right? And so it's a tougher market to manage your risk on because of the potential for information to move the market as opposed to just uh, you know, people doing real, you know, people, people making numbers for a game, for instance. Um, and because of that, uh, they're a little gun shy to book the action because they're probably going to lose, or at least it's not going to be an especially uh, profitable um, uh, exercise for them. Um, so I would say that in general, the, um, the experience for the bookmakers is not a good one. Uh, and so, and they've, and they've had some drafts come and go where they've lost and some, in some, some big, big losses, I would guess. Um, the, uh, so they're gun shy. Uh, and I, you know, from my perspective as a player, obviously I want as many options as possible. I really want to mix it up. I want this market to exist so we can bet into it, have some fun, makes the draft more fun. I don't want to just you know, sit around and watch three hours of draft coverage without a little skin in this game. So it's, uh, you know, I want there to be more options for the players. And, you know, but I get why they would be hesitant to really go crazy. Now, I would also step back and say, you know, you you have a losing draft. Who cares? Like, these, it's not like these guys are... Take, you know, it's not like you're going to go red to the tune of you're not going to make a profitable book this year. You know, players win that money. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna go spread it out on baseball and NBA and NHL. And I, and if you want to know, like, re in reality, first of all, baseball is exceptionally difficult to beat, even with a very, very low, uh, you know, low hold. Um, NBA right now is a known quantity. We're at the end of the season. You know, you know, power ratings and understanding what teams are worth and blah blah, blah is very, very sharp market right now. Um, and so if you have a player that wins a thousand bucks on the NFL draft, cause he had a couple inside, you know, he, he caught, he read a couple tweets from his favorite teams beat reporter and knew what, what that guy was going to do and beat everybody to the number. Uh, he's going to give you that money back. It's not going to last uh, through the summer, almost certainly. And even if he does, uh, you know, decide to, to do something else with that, those winnings, he's going to reinvest it in the futures market. Uh, for the NFL, you know, we're about to get schedules and win totals are about to start getting shaped and, and conference futures and, you know, Super Bowl futures, MVP odds. Like there is about to be a huge menu of offerings that you're going to be able to recapture a lot of that with. So I kind of always was like, you know, crocodile tears for, you know, the bookmakers lose on the draft every year. It's like, you know, like you're giving away all of this money and bonuses and like spending all this money on acquisition for you know on on advertising for player acquisition like you know a great way to retain players and to get them to redeposit and to have them you know enjoy the experience give them things to bet on for the draft they're going to watch the draft anyway they, you know this is seems it seemed like this has an opportunity to be a super bowl betting event in terms of total handle, ultimately, I mean, obviously, nothing's ever going to be as big as the Super Bowl. But like, at least, you know, if you think of how many props they offer for the Super Bowl, and they're not taking equal action on all those props, and there's, you know, they, it's a, it's just a jamboree of betting fun. And uh, I feel like they should treat the draft that way. And I think the fact that Circa got so aggressive this year early was great. We're seeing everybody kind of follow suit, which is great. Uh, and I also think it's good practice because next year the draft is going to be in Vegas. Uh, and so I think the, from, you know, just from the, the wave of legal gaming sweeping across the United States, 
NFL getting more involved, even supporting legal gaming this next season. Uh, next year's draft has the opportunity to really be just a masterful, masterfully large handle. <laughs> Hopeful. Yeah. And and I Vegas doesn't have a tagline yet for the draft next year. I like your your notion of a jamboree of betting fun. I would I would nominate that. Let's let's just you know to your point, let people have a good time with it. It's one of the toughest things as a better to collect your winnings at one window and not go right to the next window to reinvest it in a way that the book is probably happy to see you do. Sure. So yeah, let's see let's see a jamboree of betting fun in Vegas next year for sure. And while we're looking at the 2021 draft, I'd love to get into the approach. I've heard Daniel Jeremiah, who would get my vote as the best mock drafter in the business, or at least belong up on that short list, go on the athletic football show and say that he's seen more movement on the draft board later in the process than any year he can remember. And I like to think that that could tie in a little bit with the timing of this episode. I know people are hearing it early the week of the draft. So a lot of value definitely going to be gone, but some maybe more than usual still to come. And with no combine this year, of course, that means more uncertainty. That could also mean more opportunity though. How have you approached this year's draft compared to prior year's drafts? So I agree hundred percent. This is one of the more, um, uncertain processes that we've been through. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that there was no combine. So there was no consensus building across different scouts from different teams. You know, usually you leave the combine and I think, you know, out of the 32 teams, you have some general consensus as to where players land on tier in terms of talent. And from there, you know, teams at least got a sense of, okay, well, we're picking in the late teens. We need this positional player guys that will be available then are these guys let's give them some more scrutiny right but this year without that kind of head start you had to allocate more resources broadly to evaluate more players uh, on top of the fact that we didn't see these guys play a full season there was huge imbalance between the schedules that these guys played some guys played in the big 10 in very co tough competition week in week out other guys like zach wilson played in a very soft schedule for the whole season. And so coming up with reasonable adjustments of how to interpret what you have from on film and, uh, you know, from the data for those guys is challenging. Um, and so I think the, you know, the, the likelihood that, uh, in a given year, you take 32 teams, big boards and throw them together. There's only going to be one or two that stand out as just weird. Wow. Like totally different than the rest. Um, whereas this year, I think if you took all 32 teams, it's, it's just going to be, you know, scattershot, like some, some, uh, some teams are going to be exceptionally high on certain players. And when they see them there at their opportunity, they'll go get them. And, uh, we don't really know anything about anything because, uh, teams in general, I think have gotten better at, uh, keeping their cards close to the vest. More of them are practicing spycraft and less of them are leaking stuff to known entities. Uh, and there's really not a lot of incentive to leak anything at this point. So I get it all. It's, uh, but it makes for, um, uh, it makes for a, a higher volatility process, and it uh, it definitely should help shape your approach to how you're attacking the board on props. Yeah, and when it comes to not knowing as much, especially in a draft like this, I'd love to touch briefly on the breaking news we got just as we were about to record with the Chiefs dealing their first rounder plus three picks in the course of 2021 and 22 to the Ravens for offensive tackle Orlando Brown, as well as two picks from Baltimore. And without having time to really dig into what this means, what's your initial reaction to that news is a better as it may pertain to the props that we're looking at on the 2021 draft board? 
Yeah, the first thought was, oh man, uh, I had I had Kansas City circled as a very likely landing spot for an offensive lineman. That trickles into a lot of props, uh, you know, offensive lineman overs, um, draft position for offensive linemen that grade towards the end of round one, uh, and offensive players overs were all things that I had taken action on, expecting Kansas City at thirty one to take a, a tackle. Um, the you know, getting a tackle via trade while it's in, in, you know, first reaction is, you know, what Baltimore, what are you doing? Like, you're really going to help your chief rival in conference, uh, you know, do a better job protecting their quarterback. And yeah, like, I know you weren't going to pay Brown. I know he was asking for more than you think he's worth. Maybe you know something more about him than the general public does because he's been in your locker room. And so you're okay sending him to Kansas City. But all told, he's a really solid player. And now Kansas City has uh, you know, has this huge redundancy in their offensive line, which they previously didn't. So uh, you know, they're better off for it. The you know, he's he's more ready to play this year than any of the tackles that they would have drafted. So it's this was a, this was on at face value a win for Kansas City, and it it puts pressure on some of my action for offensive players over offensive tack you know tack, offensive linemen drafted. Um, I I would say the fact that the Ravens have two picks in the first round now, I have their biggest needs at both on offense, wide receiver and offensive line. So I think they'll, if they keep those two picks, you'll still see two offensive players. It probably just moves the offensive lineman that was going to go at 31. He still goes at 31 or maybe the Ravens take their, you know, their offensive lineman first and a wide receiver second. So I don't know that it really, you know, really has much of a ripple effect in terms of the prop market for the draft. It, Unless the Ravens made this trade and got those two first rounders in in the hopes that they can package them and move up and take one guy that they have eyes for. Uh, and if that's the case, then um, all bets are off and I could lose an offensive position player, which would be uh, which would be make that that one bet on uh, offensive players over. That's going to get real tough. Yeah, and the Ravens probably about as good as anybody when it comes to wheeling and dealing. So this might not be it for them, but uh as a fellow investor and offensive players over, fortunately got it at 17 and a half before the more widely available consensus became 18 and a half. You know, if this is the difference between landing on 19 and 18, then it could be a classic study and the value of getting the best of the number when you can. Uh, but yeah, interesting to see the Ravens quite literally making a deal with, as you said, their chief rival in the AFC. And over in the NFC, the biggest storyline coming into the draft when it came to a big trade uh, probably still is the top storyline. If it's not as fresh as this chiefs Ravens deal would be the Niners making that trade up to number three. And there's quite possibly going to be a big domino effect that that pick will have not only for the future of the franchise, but as far as our bigger focus is concerned for the top of the draft. And when this deal first happened, I was thinking, okay, if the Mac Jones rumors are true, they paid way too much for a guy who, even if he turns out to be a Hall of Famer, they probably could have had him a good bit later than number three overall. And then I kind of flipped from bearish to bullish on the Niners when Steam came in on Justin Fields about two weeks before the draft. And most recently, that's swung back to Jones again. And I had to remind myself, the draft is little more than a high-stakes crapshoot, and, and we just don't know how Jones and Fields are going to pan out. And as a Chargers fan, for example, I heard a lot of disappointment when they took Herbert last year. And I was watching, hoping Tua would fall to them, and I was bummed when it didn't happen. But it's amazing to look back just one year later and see how much that narrative has changed. So 
Yeah, bottom line here, it's a murky situation at that three spot. I know that you engage in a pretty spirited back and forth, probably more spirited on the part of Michael Lombardi on last week's draft special bonus episode of Gil Alexander's Beating the Book podcast. But yeah, when it comes to this number three pick and what the Niners may do or may not do, what do you make of all this as a better? Yeah, I think uh, seeing the Jones steam this week was disconcerting, obviously, because I was feeling pretty, uh, pretty satisfied that I got a nice price on fields to go three overall. And, uh, and my again, I'm in kind of in lockstep with you, which is why would the Niners give up their future for a player of, of the caliber of Jones. That doesn't really make sense to me. Um, there were uh, probably would have been other ways to get at, you know, to, to take a swing at Jones without giving that much up on the day of the draft. If that's what they had, you know, if that's really what they wanted to do. Um, and yeah, all of the explanations I've heard around, you know, what, you know, their process don't really make a ton of sense to me, which is always kind of in the back of my head, Ben. Okay. Well, they're not being very, they're not being honest with what, whatever their process is. They covet someone, and we don't know who that is. And the fact that everyone thinks of who they covered is Jones, you know, in the back of my head, I'm still like, well, maybe that means it's not him. <laughs> right. Like if they, cause they, they're very good at the spy craft. They're very good at the, uh, um, at the, uh, the disinformation, uh, you know, obfuscation game. And, uh, I can see, I can see a surprise, uh, there. It could. And so really I'm, I've gone from, convincing myself that they were specifically obscuring their their interest in fields to you know they're just good at the the at keeping a secret and in that case it's a 30 30 30 you know 33 it's a third 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 likelihood uh, of any of these three players they should all probably be fair price plus 200 to go third uh which means in no way am i interested in laying minus 150 for jones or even money even for jones um, and if I can get plus 200 or better on the other two guys, I'm going to probably still bet into that number. Um, you're, you're right in that in theory, this should have a ripple effect in the draft. Uh, presumably there are teams that covet certain quarterbacks who will be available that could trade into that fourth pick. Now, I think because the Niners have been so good at keeping this a secret, I think it's going to dampen the likelihood that we see a trade into four uh, because it's possible that um, it's possible that it's just uh, teams are, well, we don't know if that guy's going to be available. Who, who else is available? Oh, wow. Look at this offensive lineman. He really fits our scheme. We really like this guy. You know, we've moved on from, you know, got a team like the Broncos might, or a team like the Panthers Panthers, you know, they, they trade for Darnold, but they might still be in the quarterback market. They're not sure who's going to be there at eight. Uh, they're not going to make a deal with their rival division rival Falcons. Uh, so they start looking across tackles and they fall in love with a guy like Slater. Or something, right? Like I can see that sort of take a little bit of the steam out of the quarterback market, and whoever of the two does not get picked third, both of those guys could slide. Um, there are three non-quarterbacks in this draft who I think are future All Pros: um, Kyle Pitts at tight end, uh, Jamar Chase at wide receiver, and Penny Sewell at tackle. And the likelihood that teams like the Falcons, Bengals, and Dolphins, who presumably aren't exceptionally needy at quarterback um will take those three guys off the board next i think is pretty high in some order um at this point i you know th this week at least i've heard back and forth on cincinnati one guy just certain that they're leaning chase 
this another guy certain that it's Sewell, um, which means that's 50-50. Uh, so I don't think you can re- meaningfully take action unless you're getting a plus money price on either of those guys to go fifth. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, the, the Lions are a total mystery. It doesn't seem likely that they're going to be competitive this year, which means they're probably going to have a high draft pick next year. So there's really not a rush for them to address quarterback, uh, especially if maybe they got something in golf. You know, at least they think they did. Um, so if they, I could see the Lions using their seventh pick to really go – um, best player available or a guy that's going to help them in the future but not get them excess wins this year if that makes sense if it's a tank if it's a tank year for the lions which it probably is then taking a tackle you know taking a, a, a guy that's not going to meaningfully impact things this year but is going to set you up to to really make some moves next year is a, is a viable strategy in my opinion so uh, really all, all it kind of boils down to is I think tackles are going to go higher than we think in general. I think you have at least three or four teams in the top 15 that are likely to take tackles. Uh, and I think quarterback could be a slide position. And uh, in particular, you know, regardless of it's Jones, Fields, or Lance, I can entirely see a scenario where the other two guys um, end up in the bottom of the first round, I mean, excuse me, the bottom of the top 10, uh, or potentially slide out of the top 10. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we do get some movement, uh, maybe from pick seven onward with other teams trading back up to that spot. I know there's a lot of talk about the Patriots possibly moving up, although historically that's not their MO. With the Lions, I like your point a lot about them maybe wanting to get somebody who would lay a good foundation for the future, but not necessarily go after you know a quarterback this year, especially keeping in mind one of the biggest values of getting a future franchise quarterback in the first round is that fifth-year option. And if this might be a tank year for them anyway, do you want to burn one of those years when you might be taking high in the first round again next year and you can get the full benefit of all five years depending on what they want to do with a guy like Goff? I like that call. Yeah, so it's going to be, again, a a lot still to be determined with um, possible movement in terms of who's picking where on Thursday. And at this stage, with all that unknown out there, I would like to get into a couple of things that we do know in the form of bets that we've already made. And I kind of envisioned focusing on different stages of the process, thinking about earlier on in the process when there was less of a market, but a lot of good value to be had, maybe a little bit of a look at where things stand right now. And then looking forward, even though we're already late in the process, really late stages, just the final days, even the final hours leading up to the draft on Thursday as a third chunk to get into. And starting with early on, the purpose here isn't to brag about picks that are no longer available, but I think it could be so valuable to shed light on the process and what we can learn from that to apply moving forward. And chief example in my mind would be a guy like Zach Wilson to go second overall. I know in early March on an episode of the deep dive, you talked about him being available on bookmaker for minus 188. And now I'm seeing him in the range of anywhere from minus 2,500 to minus 5,000. So to simplify that even further, that's laying less than two to one to now having to lay as high as 50 to one. Um, Similarly, there's a prop like wide receivers over four and a half taken in the first round. Earlier this month, that could have been had in the range of minus 150. Right now on Bookmaker, I'm seeing minus 279, as high as minus 300 at other books. So that price is essentially doubled. So you can uncover a lot of value by getting involved early and 
part of it can be rolling up your sleeves and grinding on your own. Part of it could also be by building a good network and sharing information effectively with some other sharp minds. I think the best bettors do both of those things. So thinking of these two bets, any other good early value you extracted, how much of it was you doing your homework versus you collaborating with your network? Well, it definitely, it's definitely a two-part process. No doubt you said it very well. You absolutely have to have other people who have eyes on everything because you're not going to be able to see it all. There's just no way to do it. And 100%, the Zach Wilson uh, steam came from people who are pretty well connected to the Jets organization. Um, they, they had not really committed themselves publicly to uh, Wilson, but they are a leaky, leaky franchise. Um, one of the ones where, uh, yeah, and actually, like, honestly, if you're asking yourself, how is Wilson minus 5,000 now? It's because everybody knows the Jets can't keep a secret. Like, that's it's not, it's not because, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> there's really no other reason. Like, the reason that, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, everybody, everybody in the know thinks it's going to be Mac Jones three to San Francisco, but he's still even odds at Circa right now. So because they can keep a secret, no one really does know. Uh, and then it's the opposite is the true for the Jets. But um, I guess yeah, at, at 188, one eighty eight, minus one. I think my, I think the best price I got was minus one fifty. I got some minus wow. one seventy five. I got in the one ninety ballpark, but I didn't get much down on it at all because limits were very low at the time, and it mm -hmm. was just kind of you know throwing darts. So, um, but you're right. It's a it is a matter of kind of keeping an eye on certain pieces of information and knowing who's got the current hot scoop on what the Jets are doing, um, and uh, the um, um, the the wide receiver uh, the wide receiver over uh, an offensive player over bets that I've made early were much more about kind of overall thesis than it was um, you know hearing that certain teams were interested in certain wide receivers and knowing that there could be a run right um, we are increasingly seeing. Uh, offensive concepts go with three wide receivers, one tight end. And that is understandable considering the, you know, the state of quarterback play, the quality of wide receivers that are in the league, the quality that are coming into the league, all of the tools they develop at an earlier age now, high school, college, like they're being asked to do more. They're show, putting more film on tape. They're, they're more capable of e making an immediate impact a la Justin Jefferson last year, right? So the fact that teams are using more three wide receiver sets means what? You have less tight ends on the field. You have less running backs on the field. You are putting more pressure on your offensive line to be solid, which means you need higher quality tackles uh, and depth at the position because those guys get hurt a lot because it's a very it's a it's a tough tough position to play getting rolled up on and you know going up against monsters in the d-line like those guys get hurt pretty regularly so you have these two factors in in your pocket which are there's a there's just an overall demand this is an offensive league uh wide receiver is now coveted more than ever offensive line is important more than ever and oh by the way this year happens to be a bumper crop of both of those positions. There's 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 bona fide round one talent at both positions this year. And so you can kind of mix those two together long before markets are mature and kind of read the tea leaves and say, all right, this is uh there's gonna be a lot, you know, these guys, there could be a run 
on both of these positions. Um, and, you know, you may say, well, some of these guys that, you, you know, and, you know, oh, hey, here's a mock draft that has seven offensive linemen. These last two guys, those are round two talent. Well, that's the end of that tier of talent. And if teams at the end of round one, uh, you know, need offensive line, they're, they know they have no chance of, you know, addressing that position in round two, they're going to take them in round one. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of convexity and redundancy really in this because, uh, you know, just it, it, it's, it's, um, uh, it's a perfect storm of, you know, you know, supply and demand really. And, um, you know, I think obviously there's 32 picks, there's going to be 18, 14 split, 19, 13 split, um, maybe 20 to 20 to 12 if, if things go wild. Um, but all that said, they were hanging 17 was the uh, first offensive number I saw. And it made 17 and a half, 18, 18 and a half. And I, I mean, that's trending in the right direction. Um, and I got a lot of early value on that one. Yeah. And I think that's a great example of how much value can be extracted early on in the process. And I'd like to also call you, you mentioned things have played out well with Zach Wilson since taking that number at less than two to one, but you mentioned it being a bit of a dart throw at that stage. And when we're throwing darts, it doesn't always come up roses. And to that end, I know I have an example in mind, but is there anything that you bet early on when you thought you were beating the market to the punch, but right now if given the opportunity, you would take it back? Uh, man, I would have, I would have covered my bases better on all my Justin field stuff. If I had my perspective today that I had two weeks ago, which is that this is a coin flip across three players. Um, my, I, I didn't get good Jones numbers. I have a decent number on Lance, which you can still get. And I have good numbers on fields. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, that was, that was the one that I wish I was a little more aggressive at sort of covering bases because ultimately, a lot of the reason I went with fields as my gut was because I know the Niners are good at secrecy, but that doesn't mean it's going to be fields. It just means I don't know. <laughs> right. And so that, that, that is something I wish I was a little, a little bit more aggressive protecting, uh, other ones that I was, let me see if I, I might have some other really bad bets, but I didn't, like you said, there weren't a lot of options this year. So I didn't make a ton that were questionable. Um, I bet unders on Waddle and Devontae Smith that I wish I could have back now. Um, like I said, I think offensive tackle is going to end up being a, a little bit of an early run for us here in this draft. Uh, and if you play too many unders, there's only so many spots. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you're, you need an exact outcome of, well, these are the t best 10 guys. They all need to go in the top 10 or I'm screwed, you know? And uh, so I think in hindsight, I'm going to be a lot more careful where I'm playing unders in future years because it only takes one surprise and everyone moves down the board and you, you know, on every over then has a little bit, little bit extra added value. Yeah, I love that example because unders in the draft is kind of the equivalent of overs when we're looking at totals or favorites against the spread where that's that's yeah. how everybody likes to look at it where oh i love this guy of course he's going to get picked you know really high and i i have the same thought with also justin fields number three that's another thing i i thought i learned my lesson last year when i took uh, i believe it was deandre swift to be the first running back drafted thought i had a good number and then the chiefs pulled Clyde edwards elair oh. at the end of the first round and one thing i 
often do a good job of staying disciplined with is generally sticking to bets with binary outcomes. I feel like whenever it's a non-binary outcome, you're just paying extra big for every option on the board. That doesn't mean there's never going to be value there, but it means you're you're probably going to have to find the exception much more than the rule with those non-binary bets. And yeah, yeah I've got uh, Justin Fields, number three. I didn't get the best number. Admittedly, this was just more straight up line shopping. I saw a rogue plus 115 when he was favored everywhere else. So I just figured, yeah. hey, I'm going to take plus 115 on a coin flip. But to your point, um, it might be more of a three-way coin flip. So plus 215 would have been the edge I needed yeah. that I thought I had it at 115. And of course, shortly after that, fields flip back to be a dog. Now it's anybody's guess. And I think the point of this question kind of going through this exercise is to be very clear, not to endorse buying out of a bet you don't like anymore, unless the other side has standalone value, there's no need to pay VIG twice on the same bet, especially with draft props. Again, a lot of non-binary outcomes. So even when you think you're hedging, you could be in a spot to possibly lose that hedge as well. So overall, I think getting down early can often lead to good results. Sometimes though, you simply got to take the bad with the good. You know, you just said probably the most important alpha, you know, alpha of the whole pod, which is the, you know, hedging isn't about minimizing risk. It's about the, you're paying the big twice <laughs> and so there better be expected value on that second play um but yeah no i'm looking at my bet my uh my all my all my action right now if i could take one back uh i talked myself into fields under four and a half laying minus 200 because at some point in the process, I was like, well, even if the Niners don't take him three, somebody's going to trade up two for four. And and then I, after making a bet, after thinking about it, I'm like, if you're making a bet, a conditional on a team trading, like that's not a good bet. It's just not. Like in a in a normal year where all of these teams are in a conference room together or a you know a, a, an assembly hall together and they have people that can facilitate communication, like yeah, trades are going to happen in round one. But as we saw last year with a lot of teams doing remote uh, decision making, round one trades were a lot tougher. And I yeah I I, I would go back in time and tell myself if you you know do not make a bet that you think is conditional on a trade like it's just insane yeah yeah you're really trying to thread the needle especially when you're laying extra big as opposed to even yes. that can be enticing when you're seeing a big plus number so if there's still a very real chance that fields will go in the top four but i can totally relate to the notion that okay it's probably going to happen but do i want to need a 67 percent break-even probability when Maybe it's closer to 55, yeah. 60. Especially because so. I already had him going third covered other way, other places at better prices, plus money prices. And so I was like, yeah, this, that, was, that was the worst bet I've made so far. Yeah, well, I appreciate the transparency. I think you've made a <laughs> lot of good bets. You've certainly shared a ton of good bets that I have selfishly benefited from. I assume a lot of other listeners are in the same boat. But I also just like to explore that you know, even the best bettors and the best handicappers aren't going to be, you know, just coming up aces left and right all the time. There are some natural ups and downs and it's having the discipline to stay the course and, and take it all in stride. Yeah. I guess another good one that I dodged, um, you know, we talked to Ben Solak of the draft network and I was asking him, you know, picking his brain on who's the, you know, who's like the potential standout edge rusher in this class. And he was like, Oh, it's Jalen Phillips. And I was like, okay, if he thinks that, 
maybe you know, he, you know, maybe there's another team out there that really needs an edge. All of these teams need edge. Like that is a position of scarcity. There are there were not that many in the free agency class. There are not that many good ones in this draft class. And I was like, okay, somebody could reach then. And they're going to reach for and if Phillips is the guy talent wise. Everybody agrees. Then you know, like let, let's look for an under for him. Never found a good one. Never found a good price with good limits. So I never made a bet. Uh, and his number has absolutely gotten nuked this week. <laughs> if you wanted to come in on Phillips, uh, he, wait until the draft because it is continues to plummet. Uh, I guess there is legitimate concern about his concussion history and whether he'll be able to have a lengthy career in the NFL. And teams aren't willing to risk. You know, they've just taken him off the board entirely because of that. So. Um, that was that was one that I avoided very uh, um, adeptly, I guess. Um, and and also like a, maybe a, a really good lesson learned from drafts the last couple of years. Um, if our thesis is correct and you generally want overs for draft position, the most reliable overs are medical flags. When you hear a guy has a legitimate medical flag, uh, just hit that over. And it's not even necessarily because it will cash. It is because it will move. Um, Caleb Farley, great example. He had a back injury. He was, pre, you know, a lot of mocks early in, you know, February, uh, uh, February, March had Farley in like the top 10 range. You know, teams need his quarterback. This guy's a good fit. He's the best quarterback in the draft. Maybe him or Sertain. Farley, nine overall of the Broncos. Sure. He has back surgery. <laughs> Everybody is like, oh, well, he may not be able to go this year on top of being a rookie cornerback, not being able to help us much. So we're going to take him off our board entirely. Um, that facilitates slides. And, uh, you know, and, and I saw Circa open that one up at 14 and a half. Had a friend in Las Vegas get a little piece of that for me. Um, and now he's out in the 20 and a half range. So that's, you know, you, you can count on, what's the other guy? Marshall. You know, rumor of oh, Marshall's haven't had some medical issues uh, at at his physical. Um, you see, you know, he's a wide receiver at LSU, the second guy, and um, his numbers gotten nuked also, right? So anyone with a uh, if you you know if you want to be betting overs early, or just if you want to be betting overs in general, um, identifying guys who have medical red flags and getting an early over on them almost certainly is going to be plus EV come draft day. Yeah, that's a really good point. Not just looking at an angle that might have value in general with the VIG, it's not enough to blindly bet overs, but if you're looking at a 50, 50 proposition, you'd probably rather lean over than under. And then when you can find an angle like that with <laughs> medical issues to really reinforce it to your point, whether or not it's going to cash, if you're beating the line significantly over time, then in the long run, it's going to be a profitable move. And I'd like to use that sense of profitable moves to transition into the current stages of where things stand with the draft. Um, not just, again, looking for picks, but learning how to think things through, prioritizing the why more than the what, if you will. And to that end, I know we're coming up on the draft pretty quickly here, but are there still any good bets you're seeing based on available numbers? There are a couple of interesting ones. Uh, I don't think anyone really has a very solid grasp at all on how the defensive players are rated across draft boards right now. Uh, so I'm kind of in 
inclined to get involved in some of these defensive player markets like um, first linebacker is a good one that comes up. Um, there's, n I have a very hard time believing that there is any kind of consensus on a guy like uh, Micah Parsons to be the first linebacker having missed a year and having a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of red flags in his background. I would say, uh, you know, there, I have heard whispers of both. Um, uh, let me, let me pull up my, my, uh, the wagers that I made. I have heard whispers of both Jamin, Jamin Davis. He's a linebacker out of Kentucky and Zaven Collins. He's a linebacker out of, uh, Tulsa, um, that some teams in that teen in the, in the teens are high on those two guys, which means if no linebacker gets taken until say pick 15, 16, 17, uh, it could be a surprise like Davis or Collins. I took uh, first, so I took first linebacker Davis at seven to one, and I took first linebacker Collins at eleven to one, and those are just kind of hail mary plays, uh, you know, low 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 stakes, but um, you know, I could see I could see some chaos there. Um, other interesting, uh, other interesting chaos sort of action across some of these funky uh markets let me uh scroll down and see what the current numbers are and if anything is worth money um i don't know i guess i look i, I would look now for like players who are lined to go round two and maybe look for some guys with some upside uh some cornerbacks some tackles uh you probably uh probably can still find value there um man I'm amazed that offensive players is up to 18 and a half and it's juiced to the over still, which is wild. Um, did they take the first linebacker market down? It looks like they might've, huh? I might've given you guys useless info. Oh no. It's it, some stuff's it's been coming up. off and on. So it, it might be something to keep an yeah. eye for regardless. You, you can still, you can still get those. You can still get those two props, but really just the first linebacker market right now, Micah Parsons is minus three fifty. Uh, find me the team that is legitimately linked to Parsons in the top 15 of this draft. I have not seen them. Uh, it is a, it is speculative based on his talent and, uh, you know, it ignores the fact that he didn't play last year and that, uh, he has some red flags. So, uh, I think it's fun to attack away from that. Um, the flip side probably is true of first defensive linemen. There are huge question marks about all of these other guys that are mentioned here, uh, you know, Quiddy Pay is minus one ninety there. Jalen Phillips, Barmore, Russo, Owe, all four. All four of those guys are. Um, they all have detractions that I can see teams passing on them, uh, and so Quiddy Pay going first D line makes sense. Although it's minus one ninety, so you're laying a lot for kind of a a so so. Uh, you know that I guess what minus one ninety means that's about a. Uh, a 67 percentish chance um i would probably put it in the 75 percent range so it's not a huge edge but uh, i still do like quitty pay um and there's an awful lot of certainty about go you know, kind of going back to our um uh our thesis of looking for decent overs um i don't have a good sense of whether or not uh, the Cowboys really like Patrick Sertan. He's 10 and a half in general. And he kind of, that that's one where he has to go 10. <laughs> and I can also see a scenario where the Cowboys trade down out of that pick. Um, they probably have about 10 guys on defense that they all think are all 
potential future pros. And uh, if they can get some additional capital and fill some more holes in that defense with this draft, I think they would do it in a heartbeat. Um, so that's a lot of certainty that that Sertan's going to go number 10. And I haven't really, you know, we haven't had the press conference with Jerry Jones where he's just glowing about Patrick Sertan and he's going to be a cowboy for the next 100 years. And yet his under 10 and a half right now is minus 165. That seems like way too much certainty has been priced into that number. Yeah, so much good info there on the defensive side of the ball. And I will add one note on the offensive side. Take some intestinal fortitude, but I still think the number is good enough to get in play, and that would be under five and a half quarterbacks in the first round. Oh, I'm like still that. seeing the the lowest I'm seeing is minus 420, but that's an outlier. I am still seeing the minus 500 range pretty reasonably available. And I think similar to no overtime in the Super Bowl, where, I mean, that one's tough to find as cheap, quote unquote, as minus a thousand. I think that's about the right price range for this bet. So I think if you can find it at even minus 600 or better, um, it's probably good for some amount. Obviously, the better number you can get, um, you know, maybe consider a reduced amount if you are looking at north of minus 500. But we know that Lawrence, Wilson, Jones, Fields, Lance, in some order, probably going to go in the top 10. Again, a couple of those guys might slide back near the borderline, but we're going to see five quarterbacks go pretty early on. And that means it might be a pretty long wait for this one to cash. The risk would be for a team looking to make a Lamar Jackson type pick where somebody trades into the very end of the first round, sees a quarterback that it likes and wants a fifth year option with some upside. But that said, again, I think if we look at the percentages involved here, you talked about looking at things probabilistically. Um, you know, I would, I would say that if you can get that minus 420, I'd make it a full go, which to me is 1.2 units, anything around minus 600, reduce it down to, you know, maybe eight tenths of a unit, if not a little less. But I don't think we have any fringe first round quarterbacks with Lamar Jackson's upside in this draft. And if we're looking at that more or less consensus number of minus 500, that implies an 83.3% probability to break even. I think the odds that we don't see six quarterbacks taken in the first round is probably 90%, if not better. So yeah. that, that does leave some healthy value. And, and again, even if I'm right with that 90% estimate, less than 10%, you know, there's, there's still, let's say a 6.7% chance that this loses. That's a non-zero probability. So when we're laying this much big, just PSA, still manage your bankroll accordingly. But when there's value, it's value. And if you've got the stomach for it, I think that's a good one that, you know, the, the numbers moved a bit, but at the current price still, still has quite a healthy edge to it. No disagreement here. And in fact, uh, I'm looking at a couple of the over four and a half wide receiver numbers in like the minus 300 range. I would rather just lay the minus 600 for under five and a half quarterbacks, to be honest. I think that's, I think they're the edge there, as you mentioned, um, that implies, there's a 12% chance or something that a quarterback gets taken in the end round one, maybe one or 2% in my mind. Uh, so you have a decent little edge there still with that, uh, even with that big number. Yeah. And another bet on the offensive side that you've touched on a couple of times, I am still seeing at, at one offshore that uh, tends to be a bit more square, which can be good if you want to scoop up some value offensive players still listed at over 17 and a half for minus minus one ninety. So just because a lot of these numbers have moved at a lot of shops, don't give up hope. If you've got multiple outs and you can put in a little bit of time to line shot, some numbers might be off the board or unbettable at one book and very bettable somewhere else. 
Great, great. And that is more free alpha for you guys. Um, shop around, get the best price because there is no Dom best odds screen. There is no consensus across these books of odds. And uh, if you like something at some price at some book, if you shop around to four or five other books, is I would say there's a better than 50-50% chance you're going to find a better price somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And that's worth keeping in mind as we head down the home stretch here, approaching round one, looking really late in the process now. I'm curious to hear if there are any bets that maybe you haven't made yet, but you might have them in the sights and any factors that would help determine if or when to pull the trigger. Yeah. So right now, again, we talked about how Cincinnati is 50-50 on Sewell Chase. Uh, you can get a pretty decent sized bet down on Sewell under five and a half at plus 138 right now. Um, I got my ear to the ground with a couple of Cincinnati friends who once they get a sense of where they're going one way or the other, uh, I'll probably fire into that one under five and a half. I, I mean, just the fact that it's plus money right now is intriguing because, again, like I said, I think that's about 50-50 or 51-49. I mean, it's as close to 50-50 as you can get. Um, so that one's intriguing to me. Yeah. And again, just looking at the probability there, we're talking, I mean, if it's 50, 50 or 51, 49, really, as long as Sewell's got at least a 44% chance, then yeah. you're looking pretty good. So right. decent edge there. We're generally working with small edges here, but, um, in the draft, you can find some bigger edges than you're typically ever going to find when looking at point spreads or totals in the regular season. And one that I've been looking at, again, another number that's on the move and shop around because that can make all the difference. Um, somebody who I thought I, I might bring to you as a little bit of value that wasn't on your radar yet. I now know that this guy has been on your radar uh, naturally. That would be JC Horn. And I'd been eyeing his yeah. under and I was seeing, you know, 13 and a half. I'm still seeing a minus 200 out there. I do have a small piece at a better number. Um, I'm considering adding a little bit more minus 200 is getting a bit rich. I'm also seeing now a 12 and a half at minus 120. And I guess first things first, when you look at the difference between a, a 13 and a half minus 200 and a 12 and a half minus 120, do you have much of a feel for quantifying which of those might have more value? Uh, all things being equal with the team, let's say, I know this year's the Chargers, but if the 13th spot is you know just a typical team, how do you look at the difference in those two prices? So I guess a, a good a, a, for that particular example, I've heard whispers that the Chargers would take Horn if he's there at 13, but they're not convinced he will be. Um, so the fact of the 12 and a half becomes a little more 50 50 proposition. We haven't had a team strongly linked to Horn, uh, but we know that teams are high on him, which is why he started to steam down. And I'm sure there are other people in the marketplace who heard the same thing I heard, which is he's not getting past the Chargers, which is why people laid the wood at 13 and a half. <laughs> because if you have some sense of a floor, yeah, in the same, same way, like if you're betting unders, you need to have a floor. You have to. Uh, or else you can't come up with a reasonable probability. And uh, and I would say um, Horn falls into that category. So for that specifically, I'm not touching 12 and a half. Uh, but if 13 and a half becomes a, bet, you know, a little, little more bettable range, then I, I would get a little bit more aggressive on that. Um, the two teams that I've heard linked to Horn in terms of uh, enthusiasm were, uh, were the Chargers and the Cardinals. The Cardinals would almost certainly have to trade up to get him. 
Um, and uh, I think that's a, that's not a terrible f- uh, pairing for the Cowboys. If the Cowboys move out of 10, you could see those guys flop. That would, that would make some sense to me. Um, the, uh, the other guy, you know, the, another, the opposite end of the spectrum example wise would be something like uh, Slater uh, at nine and a half. Let's say he it's at it's juiced to the under right now nine and a half pretty heavily. I have a lot of Slater exposure at some bigger numbers, so I'm happy with this. I have a I have a nice edge. There's nothing I would like to see more than to see this continue to steam and get to say like a seven and a half uh, or six and a half. Right? I would love to be able to capture that middle range of seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, and even 11, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, like that seems where he's going to go one of those picks. And if I could middle that, I would be just over the moon. Um, but uh, at nine and a half, if it were to move juicy nine and a half to a flat eight and a half, does that change my opinion much? Not really. I don't think the Broncos are especially in need of an offensive lineman. Uh, I think uh, it's possible that they make a move offensively, but I'm, I'd have heard no connection between them and Slater. Um, so that's one where, uh, a, you know, a, a move, um, of the number wouldn't really phase me. I would just be like, Oh, you're going to give me a better price for something I already liked. Great. Yeah. I like that juxtaposition understanding that having a floor can really inform which of the propositions would be better. And in the case of a guy like Horn, I see where 13 could be pretty pivotal, and Slater, yeah, you're in a good spot already to start looking for middles, but yeah, might as well wait it out and see what happens over the coming days. So um, I appreciate all your insight into all these draft props, and we're getting close to wrapping things up here, but I would just like to put a bow on this by um, you know, going full circle from talking about your approach at the outset of this conversation to maybe leaving listeners with one or two pieces of advice as betters whether a lot of people are probably honestly going to start building their draft portfolios this this week of the draft, or as people put the final touches on their draft portfolios, what would be one or two pieces of advice that you think betters would be shrewd to keep in mind? Uh, if you're new to this, if you're getting, um, if you're getting involved with draft prop betting for the first time, or even if you've done it once or twice, it's, you you end up getting caught up in the interesting stuff, the narrative-y stuff, <laughs> the, the, the third overall pick stuff. You tend to gravitate to the, towards the 50-50 props, the ones where you're not laying a huge amount of juice or you're getting about a 50-50 price. Those are the sharpest bets on the board. Those are the ones where the book is perfectly happy writing two-way action on either side and you're playing into a minus EV proposition probably. The better options are kind of the extremes where you're getting a big price for uh, you know uncertainty, or you're getting you're laying a big price for uh, a, for certainty that people are unwilling to go get in bed with, like the quarterbacks example, right? Like the extremes tend to be more profitable in draft proposition betting than anything that's around 50-50 or anything that is high that is broadly talked about. Uh, in the um, in the media landscape, and then I guess the other thing is, you know, vetting the quality of people you are reading and hearing is important as well. Um, you know, listening to podcasts like this, you're already kind of getting a filtered opinion of a lot of stuff. So that's 
a good way to kind of shortcut the process, I guess. Um, but if you see a guy like Ian Rappaport drop a tweet that says some team is going to do X, Y, or Z, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it much credibility. He tends to the week of the draft, say stuff, do stuff that generates interest, generates clicks and doesn't necessarily have much meat or truth behind it. Um, so be wary of that. Uh, similarly, there will be some mock drafts that are published specifically for uh, clicks and eyeballs <laughs> that are not informed by any insider information. Uh, and, uh, you know, just ignore those. So if somebody's, you know, if somebody's being a wise ass and, you know, this is what every team should do. And it's just, you know, it's those, those are total noise and, you know, do what you can to filter out the garbage. Yeah. Well, those are the two points that I had were, uh, number one, information being king, and number two, kind of similar to Super Bowl props, some of the best value comes with laying the most vig. So to piggyback briefly off of what you said, again, it seems like we're in lockstep there. Um, I I do take some pride in filtering out a lot of the noise, trying to isolate the signal or at least declutter the landscape to the extent that I can. And when it comes to the draft, it can be really tricky. You've got to be vigilant and not overestimate your personal opinion. You pointed out the example of somebody theoretically saying, here's what every team should do. Well, guess what? We're not betting on what we think they should do or even betting on how good the players are and what our draft board would be. It's all about what the teams will do. And that can be really tough to figure out. Teams do a lot of weird things. I mean, have you seen the Raiders? So if you have a model or a logical handicapping process, it's probably best to put it on the back burner whenever you feel like you're getting too confident with it as far as the draft is concerned. And one thing when it comes to information that I've really seen this year, uh, you and Sharper people have probably been onto it for a while, but know when pro days are for players you want to bet on or against because holy smokes, pro days have generated all kinds of mainstream media reactions that have had a profound impact on the market. And they almost always work in favor of the player. Not surprisingly, pro days are pretty player-friendly setups, unlike the combine. Um, So if you want to play on somebody, do it before that guy's pro day. Again, Zach Wilson is the shining example this year. You could have had him still for less than five to one before his pro day to go second overall. Uh, Now, obviously, that price has gone up about 10x. And if you want to fade somebody, consider waiting until after their pro day. And an example in this case to be a guy like Fields, when he had his second pro day, that's when it seemed to reopen the door for a good value to get in on a guy like Mac Jones if you did feel conviction on him going third overall. So being mindful of that, being very um, diligent about how you filter your information and, and yeah, to just reinforce that point about being uncomfortable, risking a lot to win a little where you, if you really do want to find value and make a profit in this, um, you know, if you can bet on something that should be minus a thousand and you're only laying minus 500, that's still a steep risk up front and there's no guarantee that it wins, but it is so rare to find bigger edges than that. If you're looking at a point spread in week eight or, or a total in the playoffs. So um, it's the kind of thing that if this draft plays out a hundred times, having that approach, you might have five or 10 really, really bad days. And you're probably going to have way more days that aren't as good as those bad days would be negative, but they would be really healthy profits that in the long run put you in a really good spot. And as far as I approach it, that's kind of the name of the game in this endeavor. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. The best, by far and away, the best draft prop bet I've ever made in my life was over one and a half Notre Dame players 
uh, three years ago when they had two offensive linemen that were mocked in the top 10. The best tackle in the draft and an all-future all-pro guard. And the over-under on Notre Dame was over on Notre Dame players was one and a half. And it was like, this should be minus infinity. And it was like minus 800. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, we got a week. You know, forget it. I'm just going to, you know, bang on this thing. And I had a mountain of outlay on, you know, I betted it from 800 out to like 1500. And I was bit, but I was like, there's a meaningful edge here. This should be 100%. The first tackle will be a Notre Dame player and he's going to go, somebody's going to take a tackle. We're not going to have a first round of the draft and no one takes a tackle. Uh, and uh, of course, San Francisco took him and picked 10. And uh, I don't even know that I'm, watch the rest of the draft <laughs> i was like <laughs> all right let's uh let's call it a night yeah yeah sometimes you get to the spot where barring a laramie tunsil-esque situation then you're going to be sitting pretty and even when we're talking about guys to go in the first round i mean tunsil he didn't go in the top three but he still went yes, early enough so <laughs> yeah, yeah so when you can put yourself in a good spot there's there's nothing better than being able to kick back at a certain point in the first round and and just really enjoy it and uh, maybe track some final bets, but know that you're already sitting pretty. So Drew, on that note, I, I think we can start to wrap things up here with a few just rapid fire questions to close it up. I really appreciate your time and insight here. And I would like to kick this off by noting the deep dive. Uh, I believe you and Andy are still planning to do a live stream for the first round of the draft. So that would be triple duty for you between watching live betting and live streaming. Uh, first off, is that still in the cards? Uh, it's not finalized yet. I have a couple of potential snags myself, but uh, I've, I, if I'm not there, I'm still encouraging Andy to do it because it's super fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, that was the highlight of the pandemic for me last year was the NFL Draft Live. Watching that live, betting it live, that was awesome fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, whether or not that happens, again, uh, fingers crossed selfishly as a listener, but understood if it's not feasible. Uh, do you have a plan for how you'll be watching and then weaving in the other pillar of this podcast, what you might be drinking on draft night? I just, I don't really have a plan. I usually, um, I usually watch it on mute <laughs> if I'm watching it <laughs> because the, uh, the coverage and the analysis I find to be uh, lacking to a degree. Um, I'll watch more. I actually end up watching more of day two and day three, honestly, because you will learn about some players. Um, I certainly don't know the names of every player who's going to go on day two. Uh, and if you can get a little bit of an inside scoop of, oh, this is this guy, this is what he did, and you can kind of see, you know, what is it, what role he was asked to perform in college, and you can identify, well, that team needed a blank. You know, you get a sense uh, pretty quickly of, ooh, that's a. That's potentially that's a nice pick. Um, you know, think of like a guy like Jalen Johnson went round three cornerback from Utah to the Bears last year, and you watched a couple of clips. You hear people break him down. You're like, "Oh, this is a Bears corner. Like that's a decent pick right there. Like he could be a meaningful impact player for them this year." You know, and she was. I thought he was pretty good. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll probably um, uh, I'll I'll probably just watch it on my phone if I'm not doing the live stream. I would guess. And yeah. I'll be drink, but I'll be drinking for sure. Uh, this time of year, we're getting close to summer here in Southern California, so I'm gonna be at the beach a lot. Uh, gotta watch, gotta be, gotta be a little conscientious of uh, of the old figure. I'm getting up there in years, so it's gonna be a, a gin and tonic night for me, probably. 
Nice. Yeah. Pro tip on watching on mute and uh, yeah, can't go wrong with, with gin and tonic as a good cocktail of choice uh, in general, out of curiosity, um, sticking uh, with beer, whether or not it's a uh, part of the draft night plan, what would you say are your favorite beer styles? I'm super seasonal uh, in the summertime. Give me a Pilsner. Give me a sour. Those are the ones I tend to gravitate towards in the fall. I'm more of an IPA cider kind of guy in the winter. I'll, I'll, exp- I'll go with the darker, uh, you know, the darker ales and the, um, and the stout, you know, combinations. And then, uh, come around springtime, uh, what do I end up usually during the spring? In the spring, I'm usually trying to get a little fit, so I'm not drinking as much beer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It takes a lot of discipline to be a good better, and it can also take a lot of discipline to enjoy drinking, but keep it in check. And I've got to ask, because I gathered in your interview on Ed Fang's podcast earlier this year, you expressed a lot of interest in the space race. Um, there's a brewery close to SpaceX in LA, LA Ale Works. Have you been there before? No, that sounds cool. Okay, yeah, they've got a lot of cool space-themed names of their beers, even their can art. Their whole aesthetic really embraces the proximity to SpaceX. What was it called again? LA Ale Works. Awesome. I'll check this out. Yeah, I can uh, drop you a link afterward if you're interested. But uh, they also, the beer itself is really good. They have a great reputation just for that, and they have a lot of fun with the theme as well. So, Well, great tip. Yeah, one more question to throw your way here and we'll wrap it up. Um, Something to pair with good beer, and that would be another insight I took away from your conversation with Ed, which was that you seem to be quite the connoisseur of Mexican food. And to that end, what would you say is the best Mexican food for those of us in Southern California? There is... There's almost no wrong answer to this question, honestly. There are so many good options and uh, the you know, the bet, the best of, um, you know, the best of long beach is, uh, man, this is so, so hard. I should have thought harder because I saw you, you gave me the prep for this question. I should have had a, like just a slam dunk answer, but they honestly, like I I'm, and I'm a sucker. Like I love, 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 love Mexican food. Um, but, uh, you know, any, it, this time of year, the fish taco scene is incredible. Um, the, um, uh, you know, the fried fish or grilled fish taco scene is incredible up and down the coast here. Um, they've opened a couple of new places in, in Long Beach recently that I've been going to a lot. Ola's kitchen is pretty, pretty outstanding. They have this like ridiculously good queso dip and, uh, make some killer margaritas. Um, my local place, my local watering hole is, um, uh, taco shore here in Long Beach. And, um, you know, they, you know, the cheap tacos on taco Tuesday are unbelievable there. So it's, you really can't go wrong though. Uh, if you want like absolutely the best, like standout Mexican food that I've had in my life, um, you got to go to Mexico. Um, there is, there are a couple of restaurants in the, uh, the Zihuatanejo, uh, area in Mexico, which is about a two and a half hour flight for us here from long, from LA, um, that are like muy autentico. And uh, just out of this world, good banditos makes a mochajete there that is like to die for. Like if you're like, hey, what's you know, you're about to get executed. What's your last meal? Like uh, give me the mochajete from banditos. That's so good. Um, And then Carmelitas makes like this chilaquiles Mexican dish. That's just, uh, you know, this one of one of a kind. Uh, So that's that's where my heart is in terms of best Mexican food. But uh, there are so many good answers in, in L.A. You really can't go wrong. 
Yeah, I love that you brought up Molcajetes, and I'll circle back to that in a sec, but uh, that town, Zihuatanejo, is that uh, also the location referenced in Shawshank, if I'm not yeah, mistaken? That's, yeah, the end of Shawshank. Yes. That's, where, uh, that's where he goes, and that's where Red goes to find Andy at the end of Shawshank. Yes. Yeah. All right. That so wasn't filmed there, though. That was filmed like in Key West or something, because it does not look like that. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful place, but it's not a white sand beach place. Yeah, makes sense. Well, if if not for the authentic ending of the film for the sentimental value, yet another reason to go check out that spot, eat well, and maybe check out Shawshank before you head down there. And to your point of Molcajetes, I would like to throw out a tip, again, not keeping this too much in the Southern California bubble, but for anybody in Vegas, or if you're going to be in Vegas anytime soon, there's a spot called Los Molcajetes. And this was a David Molinsky recommendation Maybe the best Mexican food I've ever had, despite being born and raised in Southern California. Nice. Total hole in the wall, short drive from the strip. It is authentic and ridiculously affordable. And I love that they have a live mariachi band every Sunday. Their website's in Spanish. So that's a good sign that you're going to get some good food without breaking the bank. So yeah, anybody either in Vegas or heading that way soon, consider putting Los Molcajetes on the itinerary. I love it. I'm looking at your Aleworks recommendation too. I have had one of these. The Lunar Kitten West Coast IPA is excellent. Yes. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, that's a good spot. Um, great theme, great can art. And really, I think they've done a lot with their outdoor space during the whole pandemic that might yeah. outlast things as Southern California, especially trends in a good direction. It just might be a cool spot to hang with some great beer. And then of course, if you are you know interested in space or anything like that, the thematic is just spot on. Excellent, man. I love it. Yeah. Well, Drew, thanks once again for doing this. It's been an absolute honor and a blast. I want to plug your work before we get out of here. Uh, a lot of things to note, but on Twitter, at whale underscore capper, you also work with NBC Sports Edge. You're a contributor and frequent guest on VSIN. And of course, the Deep Dive podcast, um, maybe an NFL draft live stream, but if not, presumably some more good NFL draft coverage at the start of uh, this draft week. And then I'm just curious, is there anything I'm missing? Anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, that's, that's most of, those are most of my, uh, my hands, my, my uh, uh, current projects. Um, a lot of interesting stuff coming up this summer and next fall for NBC Sports. They're going to continue to grow their footprint in the betting landscape, media landscape, and that's exciting. They're going to feature me in a bunch of cool new projects, which I'm fired up about. Could talk a little Kentucky Derby next week, talk some more NFL draft next week. So it's going to be a great spring and summer. Yes, yes. Uh, kind of uh, getting time back that we didn't have the luxury of uh, to a large extent last year. So a lot to look forward to. And once again, Drew, thanks for your time. I'd love to meet up soon in person, maybe over some good beer, Mexican food and a game. And in the meantime, I will look forward to continuing to follow your work as well as quite a few of your bets. Sounds great. Take care. Goodbye. Thanks again to Drew. If you're not already following him on Twitter, you're missing out. Go ahead and give a follow to at whale underscore capper. You can also keep an eye out for Drew's work with NBC Sports Edge, as well as his appearances on VEASAN. And I'd also encourage you to follow or subscribe to the Deep Dive podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, I'd also appreciate it if you could follow or subscribe to Props and Hops. Friendly reminder, if you could take a quick moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, that would also be incredibly helpful. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going, I'd love to connect on Twitter at MLandis18 or on Instagram at Props and Hops.
If you'd be interested in a write-up on the highlights from my conversation with Drew, you'll be able to find that over at Dimers.com, where you can also find a rundown on some of the best promo codes for sportsbooks in states where wagering is legal. I'll drop a link to that rundown in the show notes. And you heard it from my conversation with Drew. Having enough outs to shop lines and get the best of the number can make all the difference. Last but not least... Happy birthday to the show's number one listener and unofficial executive producer, my brilliant and beautiful wife, Allison, also known as Mrs. Props and Hops. It's time to celebrate that birthday as we get this show released early in the morning. So on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. Enjoy the NFL Draft. I'll talk to you next week with not one, not two, but three exciting guests for a different kind of draft, bringing the hops to the forefront. And until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well.